Go ahead and say this with me, would you? It's going to pop on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat, all right? Let me talk to you about that thing that we just said. It's called the Apostles' Creed. It is the oldest known statement of faith outside the Bible that Christians, followers of Jesus, used to describe the core tenets, the central beliefs, the heart foundation of what reality is about, of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what he did and why it mattered. And of all the things you can say about God, of all the things that you can say about Jesus, I want you to think about that creed a little bit more critically because it has some stuff in there that's a, a little bit weird. Um, It's stuff that if I was to be talking to someone about Jesus, I probably wouldn't include. I want to give you a line today that seems pretty straightforward on the surface, but but if you think about it, hmm, here it is. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. You ever talk to someone about your faith, about Jesus? Have you ever kind of just like, found yourself in that position where you were trying to explain or articulate in some kind of way, uh, like, like maybe what you believe or, or more specifically, who he is. Would that be the phrase you would use? You know, it's like, I, I think I would be talking about Jesus' incredible grace, his love, certainly his sacrifice on the cross, certainly his resurrection, but I think I would be finding myself focusing on things like his moral character, you know, his personality, his teachings. I don't think what I would be doing is mentioning a guy who didn't believe in him at all. It's strange if you look at the Apostles' Creed that it mentions one person except Jesus. And the only person it chooses to mention is not only the person who condemned him to death, but the person who didn't even believe in him. Not really a winsome way of describing your faith. Yeah, this is what we believe. It's true, but like, like, like people that we're going to mention, they don't believe it. You know, weird, isn't it? What is it about this phrase, about this line that was considered so important to these early believers that they're like, man, we got to write that down. That's got to be in the creed. That's got to be summarized. That's got to be defining for the faith. I want to talk to you about that today because, man, it's just weird, but God's weird in all the right ways. And when God gets a hold of your life, he's going to start doing things that cause you to see reality in different 
ways. And there is some fodder tucked in this line, this little snippet out of this creed. That's a different way of thinking that God is all about, that stands in contrast to what I find most people expect or assume about God. So let's roll. And I'm going to take you through three different pieces in this today. Number one, and don't let it sneak by you. He suffered. Jesus suffered. Now that doesn't sound too weird. You know that Jesus suffered. If you've been around a Christian church for more than like 10 times, you know that this is like kind of central. He suffered and died on a cross. But let's not fast forward to death yet. Let's just focus on what the word says. He suffered. Now central to Christian thinking, central to Jesus and what he claimed, and certainly his followers and apostles and disciples, etc., etc., after him, is that Jesus was no mere man. Jesus was fully a man, but Jesus was something more. Jesus was also God. And I don't think most people think about God as someone who suffers. But Jesus did. Jesus suffered. And if you pause just to consider this for a moment, it says something pretty profound about the character, nature, and personality of God. Because think about this. Let me ask you, and just be honest, if you were God, unlimited cosmic power, all-knowing, able to do anything, would you choose to suffer? Let me ask you right now, are you suffering in any kind of way? You don't have to show your hands on this, though that would be interesting. (laughs) Truly, are you suffering? Are you struggling with something in life that you wish wasn't there? And if you had the power, wouldn't you right now fix it, take it away? Of course you would. Parents, How many of you have watched a child suffer? And in that moment, wouldn't you as a parent go, I would do everything in my power. And I'm not talking about the little life learning lessons that we let our children face. No, I'm talking about the heavier hitting things. The things that they are facing at school that are so overwhelming to them. The disease or injuries or disabilities that they face. You know the stuff that I'm talking about. Maybe they're in a marriage situation and you see just the turmoil and it's going south. Or maybe they have children that are just... You know, know, I'm talking about real life suffering here. Wouldn't you as a parent take it away like that? But God doesn't. You want proof? You're suffering, aren't you? How many times have we cried out to God? How long, oh Lord, how long? How many times have we wondered... Lord, you have the ability, you have the power. Take it away. How many people have left the faith? Because they can't come to terms with the idea that God allows evil and suffering to continue in the world. But here, it shows us something. 
It shows us something into the heart of God because we know full well that God does not always alleviate suffering, certainly not on our timeline, but God chooses to do something else instead. God suffers. It's strange to me, it's very weird that instead of taking it away, God says, no, I will suffer too. I will suffer alongside of you. I will suffer with you. I will suffer even as one of you. So Jesus suffered. I love how the New Testament book of Hebrews puts it. It says this. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make Jesus the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. That God made Jesus perfect through suffering. Which is weird in its own right. Isn't Jesus perfect already? Well, I don't know. Look at what it says. That the Heavenly Father did something in his own son too in allowing him to suffer what he faced and went through. And I love how the writer to the Hebrews continues this line of thought. Let me just read this to you. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And might I add, because he suffered, he can help those who are suffering too. What's it saying? God knows what it's like to suffer. God knows what it's like to be you. Whatever condition you're in, whatever it is that you're facing, whatever is heaping upon you, whatever you are crying out, how long, O Lord, how long, God gets it. He suffered. God is a God who does not stay removed from the struggles and suffering that we face. No, God is a God who chooses to suffer with you. And strangely, I find great comfort in that. Back to the phrase. It not only says that he suffered, but it says this. He suffered under. Now don't go dismissing this preposition too quickly. That's a preposition, by the way. Don't dismiss it too quickly. Follow me, would you? Do you want to be over or under? In control or underneath? You follow? Most people don't like the idea of being made low. We use it as a metaphor, don't we? For subservience, humiliation, victimization against dominance. Jesus is God. 
In fact, the first things that the Apostles' Creed say about Jesus is this, that he is God's Son, our Lord. Do you know the basic running definition of a Lord? It's someone who is over others. A Lord is someone who rules. And Jesus certainly rules. In fact, the New Testament will call him Lord of Lords, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It says he is the one over all. The New Testament will describe how Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling all of creation, all things visible and invisible, things seen and unseen. I love how Colossians 1 will put it. He is the image of the invisible God, it says about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things are created. Think about that, that by the hand of Jesus all things are created, things visible, and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things it says in Colossians are created by him and for him. He is above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head, the top, the head of the body, which is his church. And yet, the one who is overall placed himself under. Is that not weird to you? It's certainly weird to me. God, by definition, is over. It's kind of what makes him God, isn't it? And yet, what these early Christians wanted to impress and what we need to hear today is that God is actually a God who places himself under who makes himself subservient. And if you're tracking with me today, you're picking up on something now. But let me state it clearly. It says something very vital and important about the nature of this God of the universe that we serve. That God is a humble God. Do you think about God as humble? Now take out of your mind for a moment the pictures of Jesus holding the lamb, meek and mild. Take out of your mind for a moment Jesus being hung up on a cross. No, when you just think of God is humble, the word that comes to mind for you, it isn't the word that comes to mind for me. Words that come to mind for me are more like this, power, glory, might, and for you theological nerds, omnipotence. I mean, am I firing any cylinders here today? Is, am I resonating with you? Is that similar for you? But that's not what it says. They wanted to point something out, that the God of all glory and might, the God of all power and omnipotence is fundamentally a humble God. There's something significant in here that I think needs flushing out. I love this one time when Jesus is trying to kind of like get his disciples to come to terms with it. Because believe me, it's not a hard, it's not an easy thing to come to terms with. They were struggling with coming to terms with Jesus being humble. Because you know, like when, when you see someone like heal people by a touch and stand down the Pharisees and calm storms, you don't really think of them as like a humble human being. 
You think of him more like power, glory, might, omnipotence, don't you? So just after Jesus gets done talking to his disciples about the humble aspects and nature of God, of who he is, here's a place. Two of his closest disciples, his closest friends, one named Jacob, the other named John. I know your, your, your translation says James. His name isn't James. Call him by his name. It's Jacob. Jacob and John come to him. And Jacob and John say this, Lord, we'd like you to do something for us, whatever we ask. You ever get asked that question? Your kids ever come to you and say, hey, mom, we'd like you to do something for us, whatever we ask. Okay, honey. Right? Jesus is shrewd. Let me hear it. When you come into your glory, we want to sit at your right and your left. One on your right, the other on your left. Like the audacity of that, you know? My favorite version of the story, and some of you have been around FOF for a while, may have heard me mention this before, but my favorite version of the story, I forget which gospel it's in, which does what, but it's this. They don't ask directly. They send their mom to ask. Isn't that like awesome? And if I can just give you some practical wisdom. If you want to be great, do not send your mom to ask. All right? They send their mom to ask. They come up to Jesus and they ask, depending on the version that you're reading. And I love what Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking. Has someone ever asked something of you? And you realize that they didn't realize the full ramifications and implications of what they were asking. And Jesus knows it because Jesus is not only omnipotent, omnipotent theological nerds, he's also omniscient. He knew. You don't know what you're asking. When I come into my glory, Jesus says, do you really want to sit at my right and at my left? Yeah. No, 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 no. Let me visualize it for you. When I am in my glory, do you want to be at my right and at my left? That changes things, doesn't it? Because how does Jesus view his glory? Not with miracles, not with thunder, not with might, not with heavenly choruses, not with the glowing radiation blasts coming out of the essence of who he is. He sees his glory right here, that this is the glory of God. And if that ain't humble, I don't know what is. God is a God who places himself under. And so Jesus will say this. It's got to be the same with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to place himself under and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or the way that Paul puts it, that your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being, who being in very nature God, did not consider that equality with God, that position, that right, that essence of who he was, something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing. And taking on the very nature of a servant, became like man and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Because that's who God is. God is a God who, despite all of his power, chooses to place himself under. That's what Jesus did. Hmm. Does it ever strike you as odd? That God doesn't just make it so? No, I feel like I'm quoting Picard in Next Gen here right now, but make it so. Wouldn't you love God to just do it, to just fix it? To just act? Wouldn't you love God to force? Well, not me, of course, right? Don't force me, God. But wouldn't the world be a better place if God just imposed his will and forced people to conform? Wouldn't the world be a better place if God just forced it to be the way he designed and dreamed it to be? I don't know, maybe you're wrestling that one out in your heart, but have you ever flirted with the idea? Don't you have those moments when it seems as though it would be better? And I don't know why God doesn't. But I trust him that he sees more than I see and knows better than I do. But God is not a God who forces, and God is not a God who will force you. I think because that's not how love works. But I'll put that speculation over there for a while. And simply say, God is a God who places himself under and will make himself subservient to your will. I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. But it is. And those early believers, they wanted you to know it. Which brings me to the final aspect of this line here today. That Jesus suffered. That he placed himself under. Pontius. Pilate. I mentioned it earlier, it's worth restating again, of all the people that this creed could mention. Why him? If you were going to describe that the people, if you were going to describe the people that Jesus was in relationship with, who's coming to mind for you right away? Why not? Who's coming to mind for me? Me. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. How about you? Maybe people who have been significant in my life and in my journey, family members, youth leaders, mature and wise friends who are steps ahead of their journey in Christ than I am. If you're looking for something more universal, more general, who would you mention? I don't know, my mind's running people like this, the 12 apostles. Get Peter in there, right? 
Hey, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. That seems kind of important, doesn't it? Where's John and his chump brother Jacob who's asking to be great? Where are these people, these, these heroes of the faith? Where are people like his brother James? Well, Jacob, but you know him as James, who wrote the book of Jacob that you know as James, who was a pioneer who gave his life in the faith. Where are those heroes of old? Where are those saints? Maybe it's people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe it's people like David and his line that Jesus is part of. There are so many people who are such better people than Pontius Pilate, but it chooses to mention him. Let me tell you why. For many people, religion isn't about reality. Religion is about ideas. Philosophical musings on the way that life should be. Trying to value certain things over others. What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is bad? What is in harmony with the universe? What is disjointed from it? For many people, religion is nothing more than an academic or philosophical exercise that really doesn't have to tether itself to reality in any measurable way. Not so with Christianity. Christianity has always had a different idea. Jesus has always had a different idea. And the idea is simply this, that this stuff is real and this stuff happened. That it's measurable, that it's testable, that you can check the sources that Jesus is not just a good guy, that Jesus is not just one who brings the message of loving all, that Jesus is not just one who teaches us what's right and wrong in a way that's dis, dis, uh, untethered. No, he's someone who lived in this world, who faced things in this world, who did things in this world, and this world, thanks be to God, is different because of his appearance in it. And do you want to know when? I'll tell you when, under the reign of Pontius Pilate. Check it out. Check the sources, it says. A challenge and an invitation from those early Christians to go, we are not coming up, as Peter will put, with cleverly devised tales that we are eyewitnesses. And even if you weren't, you can check the source. You can find out what happened. That Jesus suffered in history, in reality, in real time under a real man who didn't even believe in him called Pontius Pilate. Now, there is so much known about Pontius Pilate. Spend five minutes on Google this afternoon. It'll be worth your time and you will get all kinds of interesting things. But let it just simply suffice to say that the revolutionary spirit in Israel in the time of Jesus was at fever pitch. And after Herod the Great died, his sons, who were even more power-hungry, posed a threat to the Roman Empire. And so rather than set up another puppet king among Israel's own, they sent in a governor. And that's his name. Charged with the task of bringing peace and order to a social powder keg, of a situation. 
You can read about Pilate and his interaction with Jesus, but for those of you who don't know the story, let it just simply suffice to say that it was under Pilate's watch, that it was under Pilate's authority, and it was by Pilate's decision that Jesus was nailed to a cross. It's easy to condemn a man like Pilate. But when you start to read this man's story, you can start to, dare I say, sympathize with him just a little bit. And it can lead you to question, what would I have done in the face of impending riot with Rome breathing down my neck if I was in his shoes? But make no mistake, Pilate's culpable. He's responsible. It was on his watch and he did the wrong thing. He condemned an innocent man to get favors and keep the peace. And yet, there's an interesting tradition that exists within the Eastern Church. I'm talking things like Coptic, Ethiopian, Assyrian, Chaldean Christianity, the denominations that don't exist around here and none of us really know about, but that have a heritage and a venerable tradition going back to the time of Christ. There's an interesting tradition that exists in the Eastern Church that Pilate eventually came to faith. There's little hints that may tease at it in the gospel stories if you read closely and maybe too much between the lines. But it's fascinating that this tradition exists that Pontius Pilate, realizing what he had did, threw himself on the very mercy of the one who placed himself under him. To think for a moment that in the kingdom of God, you might meet Pontius Pilate. Oh my gosh, what is that like? like, like are him and Jesus having a good laugh about it all right now? Or? Now, history doesn't verify one way or the other whether this is actually true, but let's not dismiss it. Let's not dismiss it too quickly, and more significantly, let's not dismiss a greater truth. Can someone like Pontius Pilate be saved? He killed Jesus. Now we all say this, I killed Jesus, but he actually did it. And he witnessed it. And he handed him over. Can someone like that be saved? See, if your measure of Christianity is based in a system that a relationship with God is measured by how good you get, then how can someone who kills God himself ever be saved? You can't be, because I don't care how many good things you do, they will never outmeasure that. And there are some of you sitting here today who might not have condemned Jesus to death, but have done things in your life that create such regret, that carry such shame, that you are so horrified about, and that you carry around like such a weight that you are convinced that no matter what else you do in life, it will never make up for that. If you, like Pontius Pilate, find yourself here in that position 
today, I have got good news for you. Can someone like Pontius Pilate be saved? Can Pontius Pilate be saved? You bet he can. Look at what Paul writes. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That when Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, it was to save sinners. The worst. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter your past, no matter your present, Jesus died for you. And that's what these early Christians want you to know. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Talk about a phrase that stands in contrast with everything the world thinks about God and thinks about life. But there's something weird about Jesus, something different. A God who is humble. A God who places himself under. A God who suffers. A God who does it all for the worst of us. For you. So with that, let's rise. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your suffering, may we find hope. Lord Jesus, in your example, may we find a pattern of life of humbling ourselves before you but before others as well. Lord Jesus, in you may we see a window into God, into the heavenly Father who is gentle and humble at heart. Lord Jesus, when we doubt, may we remember this stuff happened. You died and you rose again. Lord Jesus, may we see by the words of this ancient creed that you not only suffered and died and rose again, but you suffered and died and rose again. For the worst of these, you suffered, died, and rose again for me. Lord, may that move our hearts. Move our hearts, we pray to dare to trust you, to believe, to throw ourselves on your mercy and know that in you, <laughs> life, salvation, and hope is found. Lord Jesus, this we pray. Amen. And may the Lord Jesus bless you and keep you. May the Lord Jesus make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord Jesus look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. <laughs>